Have you ever seen those commercials on TV where you see them around the Super Bowl especially, you know, where they walk up and they ring the doorbell at this home and then they say, you know, you're the next grand prize winner for the publisher's clearinghouse, right? In our text today, and they always say to them, how do you feel? And they're, they're all supposed to say, wonderful. In our text today, that's exactly what happened to Abraham. One day he got a call and he says, guess what? You've won a nation. And he goes, how do you feel? And he goes, wonderful, I guess, right? Open up your Bibles to Genesis eleven twenty six. It's where we're going to start in our passage today. In the, in the Genesis genealogies so far, the 10th name has proven to be important. And that's what we're going to find today as well. Noah was the 10th name in his genealogy. Abraham is the 10th name in this genealogy. And then as we go through this passage, I just want you to say, there is far, far more here than we are even going to begin to touch and unpack today. Today is only the beginning of what might be a couple of three weeks to just move through three verses of Scripture because there's just so much there. So let me read um, Genesis. I'm going to start in Genesis 11:26, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, and so you're reading what you're reading from, and we'll meet at the end, okay? And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abraham, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These were the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran the father of Lot. And Lot died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of Chaldees. And Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah, and the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Verse 31. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son's wife. And they went out together from Ur of Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went there as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah, Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. That was a name dump, again, wasn't it, in the course of our genealogies. And we've already done a few of these in our study of Genesis in just the first 11 chapters. But here's one more that we've gotten here. But this one, I have a family tree. It's not mine, like I showed you a few weeks ago. I have a family tree and a map that I want to show you. So look at the map here. And so you'll see there on the map, you see where over here on the, that side where it says Babylon, Genesis 1 through 11. That's where the story has taken place most recently in regards to Abraham. Matter of fact, everything they believe, they would say, that is taking place in Genesis 1 through 11, for the most part has happened in that region. The ark was found up here in the mountains of Ararat. And then we know down here is where the Tower of Babel was. And so this has been the center of civilization as far as the Bible is telling us right in this area right here. And this is where Abraham was raised. For you people on that side, that's where we're talking about. And then what's going to happen as our story goes on is they're going to move from Babylon up here to Haran. And then he's going to be there for a while until the dad dies and God's going to bring him down here to Palestine. And then later on in the book, everything's happening in Genesis and in Egypt here. Those are the three primary locations geographically speaking, that we're going to be in in the book of Genesis right there. Now then, there's this family tree that I want to show you. So open up the family tree for us here. And in that family tree, 
We just heard about Terah. See him up there at the top of the list? He's that little red circle around him up there. He's the father. He's the one where we're starting with. And you're going to notice the star that's by three or four names here. That star is tracking the seed of the woman. That star is tracking Genesis 3.15 through the Bible so far. Terah is the next one who's carrying the seed of the woman, the promise of the Messiah, with him through his lineage. And so there you are. You have Terah up there. And, for, and then also I want to go back and just say this about Haran. Haran is going to be mentioned later on in Genesis as well. We're coming back there because it's in Haran where um, in chapter 24 where Isaac goes to find a wife. And then later on in 27 where Jacob, he gets to meet his father-in-law, a really great guy named Laban, you know. And, and so Haran comes back in the story as we go on. All right, so now then, we have Tehran up there. Now then, we have the next slide here that's going to highlight the verse in, in verse 20, what is it here? 28, it says that um, 27, uh, the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So there's the three sons laid out for us there. The next one highlights says, and, and Lot was the son of Haran. Next one there. And so you see, here's Haran over here and Lot. The very next thing he talk about here, and then they introduce Abraham and Sarai. Abraham and Sarah over there. We don't have a strong idea where Sarah comes from. There is an indication that she's the half-sister of Abraham. But then also the next one talks about Nahor and Milcah. Nahor, the other son, took his niece as his wife. Now, then you need to understand right now, some of you are kind of getting a little squeamish about that and all. Um, we're in a different time, a different place, different everything about that. And so there's, the squeamishness was not there. And then the very next thing, the very next thing that they, the Scripture says, he talks about Terah took Abraham and his daughter-in-law Sarah and his grandson Lot, and they went to Haran. So those are the people. It helps me. I'm again, I'm, I lean toward all of you visual learners. It helps me to see those things, to process those things, and get them up in front of me. I hope it does you as well. So now then, let's read chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. That Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. John Stott, he says that this, those three verses I just read, those three verses encapsulate God's purpose for all the world in those three verses. That's why I say, we're going to stay here for a while. We're going to camp out a little while, get comfortable. We're going to be here for a little bit. Now, it's been approximately about 367 years since the flood. And it's interesting, you're like going, so he's not the only guy in town. Why him? Why Abram? Why is it this guy who gets the phone call that says, hi, you've won a nation? Why him? Well, you know, I've wondered about that because we know that Melchizedek is also around, not in the same place, but around, because just a few years later, Abram is going to stumble across Melchizedek in the promised land, and it says about him that he was a man who worshipped the true God, so why not Melchizedek? Why Abram? And then also one other thing to consider is in Joshua 24, 2. 
There Joshua says to the peoples, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. So we're not even talking about a family that worshipped, as a family anyway, the one true God. And yet Abram gets the call. God goes on, and he says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8, he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now then, you need to just pause right there, and you can just say, this is what he said to Abraham as well. You, Abraham, I chose you out of, for a possession of myself, and that through you, all the nations that, you know, I was going to bless this nation, your seed. Verse 7 in Deuteronomy says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That is a great statement. Here he is. He's saying basically, you, Israel, Abraham, he wasn't a standout guy. He wasn't the most popular guy. He wasn't the most gifted guy. You're not the biggest nation. You're not the most special nation. You're not like, I mean, you are not, let's put it like this, you're nothing special, but I've set my love upon you. And he says even, look at what he says, and I've chosen you as a possession for all people. And he goes on, he says, for, and to keep the oath which he swore to your forefathers. He says, I chose you not because you were special, but because I chose you. And then when I chose you, I made an oath with you that I am destined to keep. We talked about this last week, folks. When he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. He says, I chose you because I chose you, and then I promised myself to you, and here we are today. I'm still promised to you. I'm still promised to you. I found, um, I I like... uh, Karen's used bookshelves. They have a few shelves there, used books. Or maybe I got this at Calvary Chapel's used books. I'm not sure. And it's by an old commentator from the 1800s. He died in, in the late 1800s. His name is Chandless. And he makes a few comments about Abraham that I really liked, and I'd like to read it to you and all. He says, Such is the calling or the conversion of Abraham. What change does it work in his position, his character, and his destiny? Before, what was he? an obscure and all but solitary man, married indeed, but childless and hopeless of issue, living very much like his neighbors in an evil world in an evil age. But God has appeared to him, Jehovah, the God of glory, and the whole course of his life is changed. A world has been spoken to him. A word has been spoken to him. A word of sovereign authority and sovereign grace. He has stood before the eternal word. And what has he learned? That there is a blessing for him and through him to others. And what a blessing, justification without works, through a perfect righteousness freely imputed, and the righteousness of the Redeemer promised from the beginning, the seed of the woman by whom the serpent's head is to be bruised. He says, he was nobody. But God called him. And after God called him, he became somebody. Because he became the one that the seed of the woman was going to come through to bless all the world. There's another passage in Acts 7 where Stephen is talking about Abram. I'm not reading the whole passage. It's a long speech. You know, there's a long speech that Stephen gives there. And he starts out and he's basically telling the the Pharisees, those who are about to 
to stone him. He basically says, look, remember our history. And in Acts 7, he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before, and listen to this, before he lived in Haran. So it's saying that he spoke to Abraham in Ur. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he left the, Ur, the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. Now, there's this question that I have in here that I don't really know how to answer. But Stephen, by God's inspiration, spoke this and says that Abraham knew about this before Haran. And then in 731 here in Genesis, it says that Terah took the family in order to enter the land of Canaan. It's funny how you get used to text, isn't it? It's funny how you get used to text and you think, well, Abraham got the call and he's the one that left. 731 says Terah got the call. And, but he only went as far as Haran, and he stopped, and he settled. Terah dies. God says, Abraham, pick up and go. Regardless of when all these things happened, regardless of when they happened and where they happened, there's no denying that God placed a call on Abram's life. Look at 12.1. Go from your country, your relatives, your father's house. Now, I want to show you. This is a postcard that Abraham sent right there. This is, they sent, he sent this to his family. He says, bye, we're leaving. Here you go. All right? I like it's another graphic thing, you know? And so here he, here he is. Think about this. It says that he took all of his possessions. It took all of his people. And he loaded up and he left and he goes. Why does he go? Why, why does he do this? It's not like he's a bachelor and he threw a bag together, a knapsack, and jumped on a plane and just started you know, hanging out in hostels around the world. This is a man with stuff. Why would you do that? All he knows is he's been told, go. Pick up and go. One commentator says, William Barclay says, that the essence of the Jewish history is leave, go, get out. He's speaking about, you know, in this case, Abraham, get up and go. And then later on throughout their history, the Romans says, go, you're out. The Babylonians, Cyrus, take them out. Throughout their history, they've been run out of towns and cities and nations. Why? 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 Oh, this is free right here, guys. It's just coming up. I feel it coming. This is, why is it that only two nations right now, why is it that only two nations right now will move their capital to Jerusalem? And why do all other nations condemn that move? Why is it that when you have another spell of violence in Israel, that all nations will condemn Israel for protecting itself? Because that right there, that whole thing about get out, go, being run off, these are God's people. And when you read that in your news, you are reading spiritual news. Do you know that? When you read in the news that only two nations stood by Israel, you are reading about supernatural forces and a supernatural battle that is being fought, and you get this window into seeing what it is. And what I'm saying to you is this, is there's no rational reason at all for all the nations of the world to hate Israel. Smallest nation in the Middle East. For Syria to say it's their land, it's remarkable. For Jordan to say it's their land, it's remarkable. For any of them to say they need more land because it is so tiny in the context of the Middle East. They don't need the land. Resources, they probably do. You know why they need the resources? 
because God blessed the nation. But you want to know something? Coming in and taking resources because you can doesn't mean you get to keep them. God blessed Israel. All of that stuff you read in the news, you are getting to see a spiritual battle take place where all the nations hate Israel, not because of its position, not because of its resources, only because they're God's people. Only. That was not my notes, and I was going to talk about that later. We'll come back to it. If I repeat myself, it's free, all right? So. The, and then, so in chapter 1 of, of, uh, of chapter 12 here, there are three times he says, get up and go from, go from, go from. He says, go from your people, your relatives, your, your country, your relatives, and your father's house. And then in chapter 2, there's I wills. So look at this. He says, I'm going to bless. First of all, he says, great nation. I'm going, this is how he's going to bless him. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Really interesting that he uses those words in the text. Because just a chapter or two ago, everyone who wanted to make their name great just got judged, right? They got schooled. But here, God is saying, when someone wants to make a name great, I'm the one that do it, and I'm going to make your name great. You want to know how, na- how great his name is? Obviously, all the Jewish nation, Israel, all Jews around the world relate to Abraham. Peruse, I need to ask you a question. So in the mornings... And if I'm wrong about this, go with me, okay? Don't make me look like a fool. In the mornings, what is the prayer that a good Jewish boy is going to say? Does it not refer to the father Abraham and Jacob and Isaac? Thank you very much. Oh, man, I was sweating on that. (laughs) So to this day, to this day, any good Jewish person who's going to get up in the morning and say that particular prayer, it's going to relate to who? The father Abraham. This morning, here we are as Christians. Who are we talking about? Abraham. There's also another whole large group of people who relate to Abraham, the Muslims. So here we are. When you take those three little segments, you have 52% of the world's population who are talking about Abraham. Has God not fulfilled that promise? I will make your name great. Half the world will relate to you in some way or another. Half the world will. I will make your name great. Is he a promise keeper God? Oh, wait, let me just stop. Let me just stop. Right. When I say something like that, you should say amen and really loud, okay? So is he a promise keeper God? Amen. Glory. Yes, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I will make your name great. And then he says also, he goes, and I will bless others through you, he says. And then he goes on further. Matter of fact, pay attention. There are seven blessings in this passage. So if you're paying attention to your numbers... The number of seven is the number of perfection from God. He goes, here, I have seven things I'm doing here. He goes on further, next slide here. And he goes, um, not only will I do all that, but then I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And all nations will be blessed through you. Seven promises right there. Now, this issue of blessings and curses, really, really, really fascinating. And we're going to get more into that as we go into the passage more fully But just for right now, I am such a firm believer that that passage still applies today. And and you can read all kinds of articles 
about the foreign policy of the United States and how it's been affected by the zealots and evangelicals. And to there's a large degree that I think that that is really true. But the more we move away from being an anti-biblical society, we will move away from wanting to bless Israel and keep them as an ally. And as we continue to do that, we will continue to find ourselves moving from blessing to cursing. So, let me, and this is the other thing that I really, really believe. My very first trip to Israel was with Calvary Chapel Chalfont, um, who the pastor is here today, but I won't call him out right now. But he's sitting over there in the white shirt in the middle of the aisle right there. And so, um, my very first... And there was this place where a couple of days on the trip, I'm still trying to figure out why I'm there. And then, and, and everyone's talking about what a blessing. This is so special and all. I'm not going to Israel. I really like it. I'm learning a lot. But then we go to a tank outpost where it's a tank battalion up in the Golan Heights. Am I right about it? It's in Golan, right? Yes. Can you tell the story? No, okay. Yeah, all right. Um, so we go to this tank place, and there's these, and there's, and uh, and, and the Calvary people have a relationship with the people at this particular outpost. And we go there, and so we take some stuff. We were giving some stuff to the guys there and all. And they said, well, we can't shoot a tank for you, but we'll start one up. And then they did the smoke screen thing that tanks do and all. And, and, we're, and we're just kind of hanging around talking and all. And I'm listening to them talk a little bit, and they talk about every time a chicken sets off one of our alarms, we respond like it was a Syrian attack. Every single time. And I'm going, who does that? And then I'm looking around the faces of the men and women around me. And, and these, stand up, boys. These, stand up. And you're not in trouble. You weren't talking or eating, all right? It's fine. Um, <laughs> but I looked at the faces of the soldiers who were protecting this nation. And in that moment, I went, God is actively protecting his people to this day because there were all the all the people there were like you're 20 what are you 20. what are you be 19. 19 they were all that they were 20 something sit down guys go back to sleep they were all 20 something <laughs> they were all 20 somethings they were not seasoned veterans in my mind i thought when i go there and see the idf soldiers they're going to be all these grizzled old like battle veterans and that's who's protecting this nation and fighting all these wars. But it's not. It's kids like that. I said, so then how does kids, how does kids defend a nation who is at all times has to be prepared to protect itself? How do kids do that? And I went, they don't. God does that. And in that moment, in that moment, I understood that the promise to bless and to curse, the promise that this is my people and this is my land, that promise still exists today because kids don't protect a nation like Israel's protected and defeats enemies like that. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I got another story for you. When we were in Israel, our tour guide tells this story. You're standing Mount Carmel and you're looking out over the, see, if I'd planned all this, I'd have a photograph for you, but I'm making this up. Um, so you're standing over on Mount Carmel, and you're looking out over the valley of Jezreel, Megiddo, right? Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. And, so, and you're looking out on there, and there's a giant runway going down the middle of it. And Jane tells a story. She says, which war was it? The seven-day? The, 
Yom Kippur War, the seven-day war? Huh? 73. And says, in that war, they surprised us. And we really weren't prepared. We really weren't ready. And we were losing. And so Golda Meir is calling President Nixon's office and says, if you do not intervene, all will be lost. All will be lost. Henry Kissinger, being a good Jew himself, said, let them bleed. Didn't respond. Didn't pass on the information to the administration. Golda Meir finally makes a phone call is able, and makes a direct one to President Nixon and says, if you do not intervene, all will be lost. All will be lost. Nixon has an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean Sea, diverts it to the coastline of Israel. Our planes take off. They land on this runway in the, in the valley there. Our boys get out. Their boys slap a Star of David on the side of the plane, get in and fly it off. That was the turning point of the war. Why did Richard Nixon do that? I didn't believe Jane when she said this. I didn't believe the tour guide when she said this, so I went home, came home and researched it. He said, as a child, as a child, my mother read to me the stories of the Bible. And she would always tell me, the Jews are God's chosen people. If you ever have an opportunity to bless them, bless them. And so he said, that was my opportunity for such a time as this. Now then, let's talk politics, all right? This is fun. Wait a minute. So you mean Richard Nixon was used by God? I mean, Richard Nixon, the one who cheated to get in the White House? Richard Nixon that lied? Richard Nixon that did all this bad stuff? Richard Nixon that had to resign before he was, impe- before he was thrown out of office and convicted? That Richard Nixon? My choice vessel for such a time as this. That's what I believe about Richard Nixon. Sometime in the 50s or the 40s, his mom is reading to him and says, if you ever have a chance to bless the people, God puts him and says, here, I know you're a mess, you're a hot mess, but I'm going to put you in this place because this is how you've been trained. He drops him in the mess. The mess happens. He responds in a way that he blesses the people. And he's moved off the stage. Cyrus was used to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Hot mess. And I'm just going to tell you this right now. You don't have to agree with me, and you can send me letters, and you can put nasty things on Facebook about me. But that man right now that's down in Washington, D.C., for such a time as this, not because he's holy, not because he's godly, but because he's God's choice vessel, and who understands why and what he's doing, but he is God's chosen vessel for such a time as this. Here you go. If you need to get up and leave now, go ahead, all right? (laughs) But you can't take your check back. It's in the box. (laughs) Let me just tell you another thing, and I I promise you, this is in my notes. It's right here. Right here. I was going to say this, and it's not because John is here. The other thing is this. When I was in Israel that first time, I'm still watching. I'm processing. And for a while... I, when, especially when our church is going through transition, we're trying to figure out what we want to be and how we want to be and all. One of the things that came across my, because of my friendship with John and Calvary Chapel and stuff, I'm, I'm watching this. I'm like going, these guys grow. I mean, they're like, they're like weeds everywhere you put them. They just kind of grow. How does that happen? Why does that happen? I mean, like if you look at all the church growth stuff, these guys don't do any of that stuff. They don't do any church growth stuff, not at all. You know? And so why do they grow like that? I got to Israel and I went, oh, they grow because they bless God's people. Every Calvary Chapel I know, the DNA of that Calvary Chapel is, we're going to go to Israel, we're going to bless God's people. We're going to train our people how to bless God's people. We're going to teach our people that God's people are special, and he's still all about his people. 
And I believe the Calvary chapels are like weeds all over the world because they bless God's people. I don't know if you think about that or not, but I think that about you anyway, right? So, and I think that's why that God's prospered them. Now then the curse still stands. I already talked about that. But let me just show you this. When I I take all of y'all to Israel one of these days, you're going to see this t-shirt. It is my most favorite t-shirt that you see. This t-shirt right here. Now, I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but let me read it to you. And you'll see it it in all the t-shirt shops, all right? It says, civilizations and nations that empires have tried to destroy the Jewish people. And so on this side over here, it lists the nation. And on this side over here, it lists the status. And so it reads this. It says, ancient Egypt, they're gone. The Philistines, they're gone. Assyrians, they're gone. Babylon, gone. Persians, gone. Greeks, gone. Romans, gone. Byzantine Empire, gone. Crusaders, gone. Spanish Empire, gone. Nazi Germany, gone. Soviet Union, gone. Iran, we're still waiting. Then he goes this. The Jewish people, the smallest of nations, but with a friend in the highest of places. So be nice. (laughs) That is such a great t-shirt. That is such a great t-shirt. And so that's really um, just um, a different translation of Genesis chapter 12, 3, all right? So Abram went forth. One commentator says, In that day and time, only the homeless, only the defeated, only fugitives would leave all their home and all their family to just go. Who does this? Well, who does this? A man that believes and obeys God's call. Now then, I have a story for you that's unconfirmed. Everything else I've said is true to the best of my knowledge. This I'm not sure about, but I really liked it. John Maxwell, I was listening to him this week on a tape, and he said that Wycliffe Bible translators say that in over 20 languages, that the word believe, the word believe is translated do. I hope it's true, because I really like the way it works on my sermon. But I think as a principle, it's true. If you really believe something, it compels you to do something based on that belief. It's the difference between functional theology and, pra- and, and real theology. Functional theology is the stuff that you really do. It's okay to yell at my wife and to kick the kids and stuff. Real theology says you're supposed to cherish them and disciple them, right? And so we all have this functional thing. It's this stuff we really do versus what we're supposed to do. And what we really do is what we really believe. It says here that Abraham believed God called him. And that's why he packed up and he did something. Abraham is 75 years old when he left Haran for the place God was going to show him. 75 years of silence. All of a sudden, a publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes phone call says, Congratulations, you won a nation, and you're going to have a baby even though your wife is barren. Well, that was pretty good for the most part, but the second part sounds pretty impossible, right? Well, Moses tended sheep for 40 years. David tended sheep. Paul disappeared for three years. Jesus waited 30 years. What do you think those years of silence were really all about? He was just an ordinary guy. Were they wasted years? God took Abram and Sarai just as they were. And what is especially important, think about this. That woman needed to be infertile. In order for her to be the mother of the child of promise, it was necessary for her to be unable to bear a child without the direct intervention of God. Think about that. Just as she was. Just as she was. What's going on in your ordinary life? 
You see, an ordinary life is not a wasted life. God is at work. We talked about this recently, but here we are again in Scripture where Scripture is making a point, and it says that your ordinary circumstances are the very thing that God is using as a training ground for the very thing He's prepared you for. Well, you know, you have so many people, and you say, I'd really like for you to share your testimony. (laughs) There's nothing special. There's nothing special. God takes seasons of ordinary, of mundane. And it's at that very time when he's training you up for what he wants you to do. Don't think that your ordinary days are ordinary days. Your ordinary days are training camp for the next thing. Don't think that the struggle you're going through right now is meaningless. Don't think that the pain you're going through, don't think that the sorrow you're going through, don't think that the uncertainty you're going through is meaningless. Because you belong to a God who takes sorrow and uncertainty and pain and all of that and infuses it with purpose when you let him have it. What does it mean to let him have it? Here we have an ordinary Abram, and the reason why he is still being talked about today is that he took his ordinariness, he fused it with obedience, and he became extraordinary. Your ordinariness, you know, we all, you know, everyone has cancer. Everyone's got a wayward child. Everyone, I mean, you know, there's no problem in this room that is unique to you because all of us are suffering. All of us are struggling in some way or another. Most of us do it in hiding, but we're all struggling in some way or another. That struggle, that suffering, whatever it is that you are going through, that pain, that loss, all of that is a gem in God's hand that he is shaping and he's forming into something he'll use for his purpose if you obey him, if you take him at his word and do what he asks. Ephesians 2.10 talks about that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works in which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about that. That means that whatever you're going through right now, whatever that suffering is, whatever that is, he prepared that beforehand so that he would walk you through it so that you would turn around 2 Corinthians so that in the way he comforted you, you'll comfort others. Your sorrow is not forgotten. Your sorrow is not wasted. It is in something that God will use intentionally in the life of someone else. Just this week, I was talking with a friend of mine about what Christian maturity is. And the definition we kind of landed on was this. That is the growing understanding of the character and the promises of Christ. And so, here we are. We have Abram and Sarah, and they demonstrated the character that says that, though I don't understand, I will obey and follow. That is latching on to the promises of Christ that says, walk by faith. I will show you. Come and follow. Basically, it's saying this, I don't know what is happening, but I know who controls what is happening, and I can trust him. I don't understand what's happening, and I for sure don't like it. But I know who controls what's happening right now, and I can trust him with it. 
And this is the thing. Knowing that God is at work in all circumstances, this is the thing. This certainty and the uncertain is what sets us apart from everyone else around us. Everything can be, I mean, literally just falling apart. And we can have a certainty that knows that God is at work in it. So, how long have you been unemployed? How long have you been struggling with having a child? How long have you sorrowed over a lost child? How long have you been grieved over a wayward child? How long have you been grieved over a wayward husband, spouse? The list can go on. All of that stuff is uncertain about when it would ever maybe be resolved in this life. We don't know. And yet, we know that God is in control of it. And that certainty, in the uncertainty, that certainty when we don't have answers is what sets us apart from all the rest of the world. Because when they don't have answers, they just don't have answers. And when we don't have answers, we know who does. We are intended to shine and to be strong when we are at our weakest because that is when God is at work in us. Abram and Sarai stepped into an uncertainty and they obeyed. And we're talking about them today. Now, I'm just going to tell you right up, straight up, and don't want to get your hopes up. If you follow God into uncertainty and obey Him, they're not going to add a page of the Bible about you. But God will take that obedience and use it in the life of somebody else for His good in their life and for His glory. He'll do that. He promised it. And our God is a promise-keeping God. Let's pray. Man, Lord, all I can say is I'm so grateful that you are who you are. I'm so grateful that you keep your promises. I am so grateful that you've demonstrated thousands of times in written word through the Bible, but then also anecdotally through for centuries now, you've proven yourself true and you've said, I will keep my promises to those that I've made promises to. And time and time and time again, you've kept those promises. Today, Help us to be a people who do not have to depend on how you fulfill promises in someone else's life. Help us to be a people who see you fulfill promises in our life so that we can give you the glory for what you've done in our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.